Hello, friends. Welcome back to Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast series. As always, I'm your host, Chris Wink, the CEO of Technically, the Off the Sidelines podcast made possible because of Project Entrepreneur. Our friends at UBS sponsor that program. And I am joined, as always, with my friend, Abby Lee Moscone. Hi, Chris. Hey, hey. I'm back. So this week, I had the privilege of speaking with Henri-Pierre Jacques. He is a co-founder and managing partner of Harlem Capital Partners, a fully minority-owned early-stage venture capital firm committed to investing in minority and women founders. Henri and his team have made big waves right out of the gate. Uh, Henri just graduated Harvard Business School's 2019 class. He has already landed on about every 30 under 30 list we could find. Also, I learned during our chat that only 2% of venture capitalists are black. So in the process of changing those numbers, Henri and his partners are also on a mission to change the face of entrepreneurship as a whole by investing in 1,000 diverse founders over the next 20 years. Henri talked to us about the process of forming Harlem Capital and what its approach to investing looks like. It was a very interesting conversation for someone at the beginning of their investment journey. So I think there's a lot to learn here from the perspective of starting from scratch, starting fresh and creating your own company, but also how much due diligence and research Henri and his team do in order to make an investment. It's just some fascinating tidbits into how their minds work and what they've managed to create. Let's listen. Henri, Pierre, and Jacques. Yep. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your company and about your thoughts on investing and some of your advice for potential future investors. So first and foremost, just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Henri Pierre-Jacques. I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, first generation Haitian American. I went to Northwestern University um, in Evanston, Illinois. And then I did investment banking at Bank of America for two years before doing two years of uh, middle market private equity at a black owned PE firm in New York. Uh, I went to Harvard Business School, graduated in May uh, three months ago and have been working on Harlem Capital full time. Uh, since then, uh, we started Harlem Capital four years ago as an angel syndicate. A couple of us as friends, we were investing across asset classes, venture, small business and real estate. Um, eventually, after a year, realized that we liked venture capital more. Also realized that we liked venture for people of color and women. We thought it was an underserved market. Um, and so we made the syndicate focus on that. Once my partner and I started Harvard Business School, we were roommates together. Um, we got to school. We decided that we wanted to raise a fund. And so we, we launched the fund uh, last summer. So what to you is the difference between, in terms of enjoyment, you said you preferred doing venture capitalism instead of angel capitalism. Okay. Well, venture instead of small business. Venture instead of small business. Okay, yeah. so what's to you the difference? Yeah, I mean, we invested in a coffee shop, a dentist's office, we had a couple of real estate properties, and the small businesses are nice because you get quarterly dividends, so it's higher RR, better cash flow business, but it's just small scale, like you, you know, you acquire a coffee shop for 300 to 600K of equity, and even if you two or three exit in five years, like it's not gonna make you wealthy. Um, so that became clear, and it's a lot of work. I mean, you're talking about like, where do I put the plugs? What's the Wi-Fi? You know, people are, you're dealing with small business employees who are uh, quitting uh, or whatever, have tons of personal issues that I've never had to deal with in my life. Um, 
and then on the real estate side, which is fine, it just wasn't interesting for us. One of my partners loves real estate, but like, it's not, there's enough people in the real estate space, it's not differentiated, mm-hmm. um, it's fine to have, but like it wasn't something long-term that I was really wanted to passion. I was more passionate about the operations within the real estate companies. Um, and then we realized for us that we wanted to invest in underrepresented groups and venture capital was the easiest um, asset class for us to do that at scale. So do you feel like the investment world has made any progress since you've gotten involved in closing the gap in funding for entrepreneurs of color or women or any minority groups? Well, it's only been four years, right. <laughs> so it's hard to close Tough the gap question. that fast. Um, I mean, like it's improved, like there's more Series A deals that are being done by founders of color, you know, and that are like 10 million plus rounds. So I think even for us, like we can just see it. We see in the news, like every we post on our Slack, like when that happens. And so it's just happening more frequently. So I think it definitely is ramping up um, pretty quickly, but there's still a long way to go, obviously. But there's more, I think the key is there's more VC people of color. Um, and VC people of women or women-focused funds, diversity-focused funds, and that helps to begin the early stages. Now, what needs to be seen is, will a Series B and Series C investors continue to fund um, these underrepresented founders? That's, we're too early in the cycle, but the next one to three years, that'll be a big question. So I read in a piece about you, I think, on Inc.com, you want to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in 1,000 black, Latino, and women entrepreneurs within 20 years. But you find that diversifying the faces of fast growth entrepreneurship means diversifying the people who invest in entrepreneurs. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think like you need, so we, there's a research by Professor Paul Gompers of Harvard Business School. One of the largest research done, it's over 20 years, 42,000 VC-backed founders and 14,000 VC funds, and essentially found a one-to-one correlation between the race and gender of investors to the race and gender of founders, right? And so like, our belief is that until you have investors of color, like at scale, you're not going to see a large shift in the founders of color. And you know, a lot of the VC funds, you have really five partners that really matter at most funds, even if they're large. Uh, and the turnover is very, very slow given how long the, the cycle is. And so, you know, even if you're hiring people of color at the associate level, like it still takes a very long time for them to make partner. Even if you have one woman partner that you promote, which most VC funds have in the last two years since the Me Too movement, that woman is not, has no material economics in the fund. Um, like she's, she's a new partner, so her voice just isn't as powerful as the partner who started the fund. So it's, it's a very long process for, the investment committee um, process and voting structure actually change. And so our view is like, instead of doing that, why don't we just start our own fund, which is what you see for a lot of women mm-hmm. and a lot of people of color is like, you know, we did a study last year where we found 200 black Latino people in venture capital of the 200, 100 of them were GPs, right? It's so like a big way for people of color to get into venture is to start their own funds, which is sad and should not be the way, but like that's kind of the reality. Because um, a lot of the people of color who want to get into VC or older have had finance experience they're not going to be able to pivot into another fund. Um, and so they kind of raise these micro funds, 10 to $40 million funds themselves that are focused on either race or geographic or some specialized industry. But we do think long-term you need that. But obviously, to get to scale, you have to have the Andres and Sequoias begin to actually commit the bigger dollars because these are multi-billion dollar funds. But we think that the diverse investors, the earlier stage are essential to kind of push that pipeline further downstream. So I think you are one of our younger interviewees, and I noticed you're on a lot of 30 under 30 lists. Yep. So, Get them before I turn 30. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I hope we we were discussing. We hope you feel okay when you turn thirty one because we'll close I've the door. I've got two on more years list. until I'm thirty, so I'll be okay. All right, good. <laughs> Enjoy it. How has your experience compared starting your own fund compared to the, the stuff that you've learned about being a venture capitalist in school and at Harvard? Yeah. Um, you know, you probably learned from the way they've done things historically. I'm guessing. In the case, yeah. It's different than like going to the firms and actually learning. And that was one of our questions when we left school was like, do we go work for a top tier fund um, and then go start our fund later, right? One, pay off our debts. Two, have like VC experience in the VC network. But I think our conclusion was that if we truly want to focus on this asset class, and I have a number of friends at top firms, like they don't see many people of color. Um, they're beginning to see women, but like people of color is still limited. So like, even if I work for a top fund, um, and become a better VC investor? Like, will I actually have a better pipeline of diverse founders? Will I actually have less biases of investing in diverse founders? Like, probably not. I may actually be more ingrained. So, like, there is, like, power to the fact that Jared and I have never worked in venture capital. We were okay. angel, angel investors um, who eventually decided that we wanted to be in VC. But I think no different than a founder who's out of industry. I think there's power to that as well, like, where we just came in and we don't know, we don't know, and we're gonna do whatever we wanna do because we don't really know what's standard in venture capital. And I think that has like given us a lot of edge because we're just yeah. doing whatever we wanna do. So, Henri, what would you say to someone who has never dabbled in investing and wanted to get into venture capital investments? Uh, what would be your advice be to someone with the money but without the experience? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you don't need a lot. I mean, the, the beauty, what we did is we started our, our own syndicate. So it's five of us as friends. And that allows you to write 25K checks but not have to have 25K coming from you. Depends how much money you have. Um, but having that ability that, you know, there's plenty of angel syndicates across the country. But I think if you, you know, if you're in a smaller angel syndicate where you guys are the ones, like that gives you contact to the founders. So we never invested in companies where we didn't know the founders. Um, we always had access. We had their phone numbers. We, even though we were writing 25K checks as angels, like we still were providing value. Like one of our core values was like, we can provide more value at on a per dollar basis than most other investors, right? And so like, we wanted to be engaged with the, the founders. And part of the experience for us was like, any of the money we invested, like we were like we were fine losing. Obviously nobody wants to lose money, but like we're not gonna invest in an early safe start with the belief that I need this money. So if you don't need the money, you're fine with it going to zero. Um, then it really becomes about a learning experience, right? So for us, like we were trying to learn like what is, you know, getting their materials, having the board, seeing the journey. And so that, that was really what was more valuable was like, hey, I wanna learn, I'm doing this at work, I'm an investor in my day job, but like how do I actually do this with my own money? are my investment decisions or diligence processes different if it's my money versus the firm's? Um, and then a lot of our investments is I'm doing well. That was kind of a cherry on top, but like if I lost, you know, depends how rich you are, but if you lose a couple of 10, 25,000, like it's not gonna change my life. Is it gonna hurt? Yeah, um, but I'll be okay. And so I think if you have that mindset now, as you begin to invest and now venture becomes, you know, more than 10% of your net worth, obviously you need to become more diligent institutionalized. A lot of angel investors are doing emotional investments. They want to learn. They want to be a part of the process. Uh, it's kind of like a side hustle, another job. Maybe you've already made good money. You put aside some money to really like test this out and just get to know the space and learn about the technologies. And oftentimes, if you have another business and you're high net worth, like these venture-backed companies will impact um, every industry. And so it's just like, hey, I want to learn 
this is gonna help me learn about my main business. So like if I'm a real estate developer um, or in the real estate family, then like I'm gonna make a couple of real estate tech investments mm-hmm. and like that's gonna impact my main business. And I'm willing to put one to 5% of my net worth um, to play with, to understand like who are the up and coming people who are gonna disrupt my industry. And so a lot of people do it also just as a protection to like, hey, this is my main business. I need to understand who's gonna disrupt my, disrupt my main business. And that's just kind of the cost of capital. I really want to know about, you know, your your fund is one year old. How have you made choices about which companies to invest in so far? Yeah, I mean, it evolves. Like, the angel syndicate was definitely more emotional. We had processes, but it's not as diligent because you're writing 25K checks, so you can't get data, as much data. Like, you can't spend as much time with management. You can't do as many reference checks. So it's just a very different process. Now that we have a fund... You know, we typically do 30 to 40 page memos. We have several reference checks. We have whatever data we want because we're writing half a million plus checks. Um, so it's just a very different process. It's more similar to what we were doing in, in private equity. Um, and in private equity, we were doing 140 page memos. So like even 30 for us is pretty light, but that's a lot for venture. Um, and so, I mean, for us, like we kind of have four phases. The first phase of diligence is like the initial screening. Whoever the main partner is has a call with the founder um, checks the box, like, do I like the founder? Does the business meet our general criteria? Uh, they'll bring it back to the team. The second phase is you'll do um, some diligence on some more diligence on the company, on the market. The third phase is you do a full team call. So only one partner spoke for the first phase. Now both partners will speak. We'll talk to not only the CEO, but the CEO, CEO, and CTO. So whoever like the top three people are of the company, we'll do like a full one to two hour in-person session. Um, and then the fourth phase is we do a memo and we go to an investment committee and we make a decision. So typically, like, if it's really quick, like one of our companies, you can do it in three weeks. If it's, like, an oversubscribed, can't get in. Um, but, like, generally we like four to six weeks is comfortable. And then if we can, like, we'll stretch it out six to eight if it's very clear that the founder is not going to, you know, be oversubscribed. Um, we'll take more time because you, you learn over that. The, the more you spend with a founder, you learn their mistakes and more of the the skeletons come out, mm-hmm. um, but I would say usually for a good deal, you gotta be able to get there within four to six weeks. Does any part of your selection process come down to a more human element, like getting to know the people that run the company and feeling really good about their commitment? Or to you, is it more science than art, or is there any element of art to it? Yeah, I mean, there's always art and venture. I think we're probably more business market-based than most early stage funds because of our private equity backgrounds. Um, and we'll get to know the people, but I think you also realize people change post-investment hmm. versus pre-investment. Um, so that we do a lot of that. Like we'll, we, you know, typically I would say on like a hours basis, we'll probably talk to the founder for at least four hours before we invest. Like if you actually aggregate each yeah. of the calls up. Um, but like the reference checks for us are important. So like who was an investor? You know, we're doing, we're closing a deal next Monday one of the investors has invested in the company three times, right? So they've been around for a while, for three years, they know the business well. So like, I can get from a good sense from that investor, like, hey, you're invested in the pre-seed, the seed, and now you're investing in the seed plus round. Um, like, how, is that, how has the founder changed over the last two years? You know, what were the expectations when you did seed? How is like your, you know, the information, right? So they actually doing quarterly updates, like how your board calls been? Like that to me is more important because a person can tell you what they want. And at the end of the day, if you got a good deal, you're not gonna be able to spend more than four to six weeks with a founder, right? And so unless you knew them previously, um, which is like the network biases that happen, like we're not a firm that can rely on, let's just invest in people we know. 
because uh, we're trying to break the barriers as an underrepresented focus firm. So like the deal we're doing next week is based in Salt Lake City. There's no way I would have known her before. Like she grew up in Hawaii and moved to Singapore. Um, so it's like, okay, I have six weeks to get to know you. I'm gonna ask the questions I need to know. But like, let me talk to people who've known you. So we did customer reference checks, like customers who've been with her for two years, like how have they been as a company? Investor reference checks, like how have they changed since you gave them money? You've invested three times, clearly you still believe in her. Like what's giving you that confidence? What were some of the challenges? Um, and then like founder references, usually as a founder of color, we know other founders of color who know them. Um, so like just in the ecosystem as a person, you know, what are your thoughts? I don't really care about them professionally, but like, how do you view them as a human? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of the business will speak for itself. Like the rest for, in our view, the business and market will speak for itself. And we try to get to know the founder, but like at the same time, we want to, we're not trying to sit with the founder for 10 hours. I don't, I don't have the time and they don't have the time. Like, you know, they're trying to get 15 or 20 investors in, in a round. Like they don't have time to do it with every investor. So it's also balancing, like being reasonable and understanding the dynamics for a founder during the fundraising process. They're, you know, if you're a great founder, maybe you'll have 10 meetings. Uh, if you're an okay founder, 50. If you've got like a real challenge, which a lot of people of color and women do, you may talk to 50 to 100 people to get you know, 10, 10 checks. And so we're also trying to balance that. We wanna make sure the founders can run their business and we're not taking up all their time and distracting them. Sorry, just to make sure that I heard that clearly. You're saying that for a person of color or a woman, they have to reach out to way more investors. Usually, yeah. You also know less people. You know less people with, with less money, right? Like, if mm-hmm. especially if you're talking, it's different as you get post-Series A, but like pre-seed seed round, which are like 250K to whatever, $3 million rounds, um, if you don't have a VC fund, then you're, you're, you're based off of friends and family, right? And if you're a person of color, woman less so, a person, particular person of color, woman of color, you know, your friends and family, they're writing 10, 20K checks. So like to do a, to do a quarter million dollar round, you need a hundred checks right. or you need 10 checks, um, 10 to 15 checks to get 10 to 15 checks. Like you, you probably have, if you're really good, 50% win rate, right? So 30 people, if you're okay, 20% win rate. So, you know, 20 times five, so hundred people to so get 20 checks. So it just depends because your checks are smaller because you don't know as many millionaires. Now, if you have friends and family, like my friends at Harvard Business School, yeah, yeah, you get one person to write you a 100K check pretty easily. So, like, you only need two people to raise 250K, and, like, that's much fewer meetings. Yeah. It's a reality. Yeah. <laughs> I'm absorbing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've been doing the fund for a year. Is there anything that you've learned that you're like, oh, man, we really did that wrong in the beginning? Um, I mean, we haven't done anything wrong because that would be bad within a year. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, like... You just learn that the process evolves, like we're always changing and you can't be naive in thinking that what got you here will get you further, right? And like going from angel investing to raising a fund is very different. Uh, your diligence process has to evolve if you want to be institutionalized. Like I just don't, we don't believe that investing in founders or like using your gut will get is scalable. Like it's fine if you want to raise a $20 million fund. Um, but like we want to raise a billion dollars of capital and like institutions don't give you hundreds of millions of dollars because you make gut checks like they want to see memos they want to see models and so like that's where we want to go and so we're building out the firm that way and right like so that evolves as you go from angel to a fund and then even go as you go from fund one to fund two um, you know we're going to try to two to three to four x the next fund and like that's a whole new level and like what does it mean to take that and so 
making sure you're evolving and like also in venture on like private equity or other asset classes, you don't know if you're good for seven years at least, right? Like, so realistically, until you raise fund three, like you don't know if you're good because you typically raise funds every three years. So like fund three, you raise six years out, you might start having some, some exits. And so like you just raised fund three and now you're beginning to realize like, am I actually good? Like I have markups, but like did I actually liquidate? Um, and so the question becomes like, how do you evolve along that process? Because you can't wait until fund three to change your strategy, but like you should change your strategy before fund three. Like you should evolve, but like you fundamentally don't actually know like, am I a good investor? Like the majority of people who are in venture, like 80, I think I've heard 70 to 80% of venture capitalists today have never invested through a recession, right? It's been 11 years since the recession. Mm -hmm. So like the majority of, of VC investors are under 35. Right? There's a couple of Sequoias and Kleiners in the world, but a lot of people are under 35, or if they're not under 35, they've not been in venture capital for 11 years. So most people in VC have no idea if they're good. Um, and so they've never invested through a recession. They've never seen a significant markdown. It's pretty easy if you've been a VC investor for the past 10 years to, to make money. It's not rocket science. The market's been killing it. Um, and so I think people will, you know, the next two, three years when the recession happens, like there'll be a lot of people who are gonna be learning, including us who've never invested through a recession. And like, you're, we're gonna get tested and you're gonna have to evolve and, and change your business model. And companies that were just going up, up, aren't gonna be doing that because consumers are gonna have to cut their spending and direct the consumer businesses are gonna struggle and cash flows to become more important. And maybe revenue growth becomes less significant because there's no capital and it dries up. So, you know, I think people will evolve. I think most VC investors, including us have not, had to go through that test. Um, and we have a lot of LPs in our fund who have been around for 20, 30 years and they've been through multiple cycles, they've been through multiple funds, they understand that. And so getting advice from them and understanding how do we position ourselves in anticipation of having to deviate or pivot or change strategy, what do we do today to prepare ourselves? I think that's something we've learned. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, it just you just have to constantly evolve and like how do you put tools in place to check yourself when an exit is not what really should be validating you as an investor. Because you can make a good investment, it can go to zero. You can make a bad investment, it can go to 20x. So even your exits or your duds don't necessarily tell you if you made the right call, right? Because a recession can happen or you made a company and all of a sudden Uber happened, but like it was a good business. Like did something else happen like that you couldn't really predict and right. then this is a life of venture. Is this a job for you that's hard but it's 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 a job that you like doing or is this a job for you that's also fun i mean it's my life it's work life there's no like work life balance doesn't really exist for me like it's the same thing like i like i love investing if you want to be in this game for a long time like you have to love it it's too competitive not to um it's too hard not to like you work all like you're because you're i think people underappreciate that like you're a founder when you're a gp like you're a founder and founders work all the time and that's just the reality like you have to be able to work 24 7 um and if you want to scale you just got to constantly think about like what can i do better you're only as good today as you are tomorrow and so like you're, you're constantly having to think about like what am i gonna do to be better tomorrow like and you know it's funny because you know we've been on all the 30 on the 30 list and people always congratulate us and but it's like it doesn't really matter like that's great we got the award or we rose we raised the fund but just like a startup I'm like okay cool where's series b like okay like what like what's the like what's the next thing like so like you're just you're always trying to get better and regardless yeah. how successful you've been which is a problem with with founders in general like we it is hard to enjoy the present um because you are so focused on the end goal but yeah we love it we love what we do uh the mission helps you know i don't i don't really like venture capital 
by itself isn't as interesting to me, which is I wouldn't have done venture if it wasn't for our diversity focused lens. Like I would have stayed in private equity and, and made more money probably. Um, but like the mission of diversity is what drives us and it's the only reason we did venture because you couldn't do it in private equity. There's not enough of a pipeline today. But like that mission and how we know we can change lives and we can help to close the wealth gap for people of color in their communities and give them equity and ownership of their businesses, like that's what drives us. Like making money, like we're gonna make money like regardless if we did venture or not. I'm not worried about making money. Mm-hmm. It's like do we actually like have impact? Um, are we actually changing lives? And like that's what drives us as a firm. Like the mission is by far like the the North Star for all of us as a as a team. And it's the only reason I work as hard as I do. I wouldn't be working as hard to make four times my money on the fund. Like that's not interesting. Um, it's a requirement to scale the business and actually execute on the mission, but it's not like what drives us. I want to like stand up and cheer. That was that was motivational. <laughs> I appreciate it. I want to abs- I want to absorb that energy. Very. It's a, it's a 10x mindset. It's one of our core <laughs> values. Oh on, really? On the firm, yeah. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about progress in the area. Like you know, you talked about your mission. What do you think it'll take? for um, VC investors or uh, people who want to become VC investors to start seeing more value in companies founded by women or people of color? I mean, at scale, exits. Like, it's really like the reality is like, you know, I think over time it will happen slowly and surely. Like you're gonna have more funds like us. You're gonna have um, larger funds begin to create side vehicles. But like the way that these funds really at scale is like if Cadre exits, if you know Zola goes public, if Glossier actually, you know, it's so it's helpful that Glossier and Rent the Runway are unicorns, but if they don't like if they don't exit, they just be you know they don't have to be frauds. Um, like why am I blanking on the like Theranos, but like even if like they're not a fraud like Theranos, but if they go to zero and they don't require if they like are a dud, then people still may believe like okay great you had a woman unicorn, but like I made one times my money. Right. And so like reality is like it's not going to be significant capital until those companies have liquidity events and people are like, OK, I can actually make money. Markups are nice, but money is what people care about. So I think that that's the reality. It's the only way you do it at scale. Um, and then along the way, you're going to have a bunch of micro funds like ourselves helping to create that funnel to create the glossiers of the world. Um, and then we just, you know, the reality, the, the part that sucks is like we're creating the, the beginning part, but we got to hope that the Andreessen's and Sequoia's in the Series B, Series C, et cetera, continue to funnel these founders and then right. that they help them exit. Cause like, you know, it could be a great business, get, give them seed funding, give them Series A funding. But if you don't receive enough funding to be in later, like you're, the founder's screwed. Like you just not gonna scale fast enough. Somebody's gonna come eat your lunch. Um, and then people say, see, look, the business failed. And you're like, well, that wasn't because of the business. Like that was because you guys didn't fund them. Um, huh, yeah. which has happened, you know, that I won't name the names, but there's a, a company that, that happened and people really said that it was because, um, there was not enough funding for that business. So you're really taking on a huge responsibility of being in on the ground floor <laughs> and doing all of that work. So to, you know, prove that these are valuable investments. Yeah. I mean, it's the goal. You try to create the pipeline, then you got to hope that the founders have the right people backing them. And as they continue to go downstream, there'll be people there to support them. That's why it's, that's why it's high. I mean, it's the risk of any seed investor. You never know who's going to fund, but I think particularly for underrepresented founders, knowing that the series B and series C is very, very hard and it's institutionalized and there's 
much fewer firms. Like the seed stage is easier now because there's just so many seed stage funds. But as you go further downstream, there's less and less funds. So there's less and less options for these founders of color. And you would hope that if you have a great business that you would get funded, but obviously we all know that meritocracy doesn't exist. Right. Um, so there's a lot of things that play that for, for these founders as they get later stage. But it's slowly happening um, and we'll see. I can't say I'm surprised, but it still stings to hear that there's such a strong correlation between the race and gender of VCs and the race and gender of founders. And that the scale of investors of color needs to drastically increase in order for the gap in minority funding to decrease. For, for newer investors, it's important to hear how he's trying to close that gap. He's using investment as a vehicle for social change. There's something for you to learn there. He was also a great interview because his firm and work is still relatively new, but but already immediately holding influence. Yeah, and I think that's why their firm has made such a huge impact already. You know, they're young and scrappy. They're incredibly intelligent, but they're going for it. And I, as I read somewhere, they're hungry. And you can tell because they're getting the work done. And they're learning as they go, right? And that's something that any listener here will have to do. Um, learning as you go by only investing money you're okay with losing is probably a crucial part. Yes. Um, they're the four phases of diligence, right? That was the phrase. When they're picking their founders, that's something to call back to. Right. It was an interesting contrast to me, actually, to some of the other investors that we interviewed where gut instinct played a role in decision-making versus Henri, who is more, as he said, business market-based. It always goes back to how many different paths one can follow to find success as an investor. It You're going to find your does. own. Yeah. Well, that's this episode of Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast series brought to you by us at Technically, powered by Project Entrepreneur, a program sponsored by UBS. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Make sure you subscribe so you can listen to the full series. And if you have questions or comments, tweet us at technical underscore LY or tweet me directly at Christopher Wink. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye.